Hi, welcome to the Mama Advocate Podcast. This is a safe place for adoptive and special needs mamas to feel less alone and find community amidst their unconventional journeys. Here, you're going to find authentic conversations from me and my guest who are parenting fully in the weeds with you. Our goal is to empower and encourage you to be the best mama you can be as you advocate for your people. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited today. We have Nicole Smith with us and I just, I love her story. I love how she has taken just the crappy parts of life and turned them into beautiful things and um, not only given her life more purpose and value, but in turn has given so many others more purpose and value. And so, Nicole, would you please tell us about yourself and <laughs> kind of why you're like the dignity expert here? Oh, Wow. I don't, I don't know what to say expert per se, but you know, I'll take the compliments where I get it. But again, like I said, I'm Nicole, like she said, I'm Nicole Smith and uh, I have a pretty unique journey uh, professionally and personally. So I just start off by just introducing who I am and what really matters. I'm a child of God. I am the wife of a handsome and dependable man named Kyle. And I have two daughters, um, one that is a, had a typical journey and one not so typical. Um, but my career sort of is what built into my personal uh, story that sort of puts me in what she would call an expert in the dignity field. But uh, I actually have a background in uh, law and public policy. I kind of landed on the global human rights uh, arena on the communication side. So for over 10, 10 years now, over a decade, I have taken on some pretty strong initiatives on the global scale. So, you know, it's like the child bride of Uganda, the sex slave of Afghanistan, you know, I, I pretty much touched every continent at this point with some of my advocacy work. So um, I'm very in, intimately aware of the terrible things that other human people can do to one another, which is, which is a sad reality, but yeah. Yeah. How does that play out now, like in your motherhood journey? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I try to back up and kind of tell that lead in because it gives a little bit of um, purpose to what I did as far as like becoming a mother. Uh, and I know, like, I'm sure a lot of the listeners, are they largely mothers? Probably. So uh, I don't know if this is your journey, but I gave birth to my very first daughter just a few months before I turned 30. And I always kind of liken it to uh, being in a world of black and white and then being transported into technicolor, right? So, you know, that birthing process was just like, wow, women are so strong and powerful. I had labored for 29 hours unmedicated. Oh, I pushed... Nice. Pushed for 15 minutes, broke almost uh, every blood vessel in my face, bringing, giving birth to this precious child. And then I'm, I'm up and walking around within, you know, minutes after giving birth. It was just wild. And my husband kept going, Oh my gosh, you did that. I'm like, Yeah, I know. I'm like, Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so motherhood was just this really strong, uh, gave me a really strong awareness of purpose beyond just what career, you know, it gives that sort of tangible reality that you can touch and feel. Um, this human person that really just has value and gives you purpose in your life. So about a year after I gave birth to her, I end up uh, going into a new season in which uh, my husband and I wanted a second child, but I had a physical ailment that put me in excruciating pain 24 seven. And it also had the effect of 
infertility. So I was in that phase for a couple of years and I was seeking out physicians, trying to figure out what was going wrong. And thankfully I started to shift, you know, physically and starting to get better a bit, but then that put me into a new season of miscarriages. So I started losing babies pretty much every month. Um, and that was very devastating season as well. You know, if anybody's experienced infertility, you know how much all your hopes and dreams are sort of wrapped up into you being able to grow this new life. And then when you realize those live, those lives aren't meant to be held in our arms, but in the arms of Jesus, there's another shift in your perspective and um, your journey of you know, mourning, grieving the reality that was at hand. And so, you know, even my husband and I were started preparing our, our hearts for adoption. And then I conceived my second daughter. And for all the things that we've encountered since then, man, this child is a fighter. Like she's proven it from the point of <laughs> conception all the way on. So, you know, the infections stayed throughout my pregnancy, but she, that the infection that was keeping me from like conceiving. And then, so, um, yeah, she, she stayed in and we went into labor 37 weeks. So only a slight bit early. Um, but the birthing process was very complicated. So that's when, um, yeah, my water breaks, I'm in labor unmedicated for 27 hours. I've even been transferred to from a birthing center into an actual hospital here locally. And I wasn't able to get all of my testing because this was like the height of COVID. And I mean, like the height of it. it was April, early April, 2020. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, that's so stressful. Yeah. Yeah. So at that time they were doing like parking garage exams and uh, everything was tough. Yeah. I know it was pretty wild. So, so because I went into labor at 37 weeks, they usually do a, a test at 36 weeks to make sure you don't have any infections because they didn't do that test. They didn't touch me pretty much for 27 hours and 27 and a half hours in, they find out like, Hey, you know, there's something going on. The nurse sends in a doctor finally. And the doctor says, Hey, you know, let's go ahead and check you. You know, I know we haven't really touched you, but we probably should check you and see. And she sticks her arm up there and sure enough, uh, she yells out, it's a prolapse cord. And a prolapse cord is when the umbilical cord comes out in advance of the baby and it kinks off oxygen flow. And I mean, 20 medical professionals run into the room. The nurse jumps on the gurney with me. The doctor jumps on the gurney with me. Everything was fine. Then everything's not. My husband's just standing there like, what is happening? I'm rushed out. They're screaming, cover me up, cover up, you know, because... Poor, some poor dad in the hallway doesn't need to see that. <laughs> like some poor woman being used as a human ventriloquist puppet because the lady's arm's still up there. The doctor's arm's up there. Rush me in the OR. They're ripping my limbs every which way. I'm convulsing in pain because, you know, they're sticking catheters in me and I don't have an epidural. So I feel every ounce of all of this. And at one point, I'm just like asking everybody's name, like, what's your name? What do you do? What's your name? What do you do? And like one little tear like down my face. I'm just so overwhelmed. And one very precious uh, anesthesiologist comes out and says, um, it's okay. You know, this, you, 
you're not used to this, but we do this every day. You're going to be fine. I said, well, that's, that's, that's great. I trust you guys, but you know, are you just going to rip me out her out of me? Cause I don't have an epidural. And she said, no, 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 we're going to put you under, um, within like seconds after that phrase came out of her mouth, I was, I blacked out. And so I would wake up without a baby in my arms and I, it would be hours and they had no word. And of course, when you come out of a C-section of that type without an epidural, there's no really way to catch up to the pain. So like I felt like I'd just been ripped open and they kept trying to give me like this narcotic pump, but it just wasn't working. It was just making me high as a kite and delirious. And uh, so we didn't stay on that for very long. And also very shortly after when they finally bring her to me, they don't tell me that anything went wrong. It actually took me three weeks into NICU to overhear a nurse's uh, shift change that she had been resuscitated at birth. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah. And then a few days later, I got it confirmed through insurance resuscitation of newborn infant, $746. Why didn't and they I, tell you? I don't, so I think really what it came down to is this. I <clears throat> So what they do <clears throat> following birth is they do these tests and they'll basically uh, look at the umbilical cord and they do all these. That's why it took like three or four hours for them to ever bring her back. And of course, I'm like high as a kite. I have no idea, like relative of time. I had to ask my husband. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm like, got to tickle my throat or something. yeah like I guess it took like a lot of hours for them to come back and they were doing testing and so I don't know if you've heard of like the APGAR scores right so hers were borderline and I think they looked at it like because it fell into a range of borderline that they weren't obligated to tell me that's our theory and so, uh, but it, the, the weird part was, is like, so we're put into, you know, the normal maternal recovery process and, um, but there's, cause nothing was really like telling us right off the bat that there was something wrong, but it, it was pretty soon after, you know, you're supposed to latch and start to nurse and, <clears throat> my daughter wasn't latching and she wasn't able to suck. And then she wasn't really waking up at all, which I mean, newborns really sleep a lot, but her, she was hardly able to be like woken up at all. And then she, if she was awake and if she was calm, she, there, her limbs wouldn't move at all. But if she was upset for any reason, like if she was hungry, her entire body and her eyes would roll full white in the back of her head. And she would just like her arms and legs would just seize and like, you know, it looks like she's having these massive seizure activities. And so, you know, for four days, they're like, you can go home. No, you have to stay, you can go home and go to stay. And we're like, what is happening at this point? You know? And again, this is like COVID. Nobody can come visit that. My husband was allowed to be there with me during the recovery process, but you know, all restaurants were closed. Um, you know, it was just, it was kind of wild times in general, but I remember at one point, um, 
you know, my, my sweet husband, I'm like in recovery going, I just really want a decent cup of coffee. And he's like, okay, I'm going to hunt for a normal cup of coffee. That's not a hospital coffee. And so, you know, of course he has to venture off a great distance because, you know, COVID shut everything down. So uh, I'm waiting and waiting, waiting. And then all of a sudden, you know, like physicians start decide to come in and, you know, you've got your, you know, the normal physician and I've got like three or four other people that come in with them at the same time. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is intense. And apparently a few of them are, are neurologists. And at this point they had done a few testing to try to figure out the whole not being able to swallow things. So there was some indication something might be amiss. She'd already had a brain, a brain scan, but it wasn't like a deep tissue scan. So lots of confusion and they come in and they start asking me a lot of questions like, you know, is this normal behavior for her to be weak? Is this normal behavior for her to like sleeping patterns, which I thought was really interesting that they would uh, ask about her behavior, like human like behaviors from the womb that is she exemplifying these same behaviors outside the womb? And I'm like, no, she was really strong. She actually used to bru bruise me from the inside out. She was such a strong baby. And uh, this is just not her, you know? So a few minutes in, uh, they point out this lady in the back of the room and she's the head of NICU. And she basically comes forward and explains that we can't go home. We have to be put into intensive NICU for extensive testing to figure out what happened. Um, and then about that time, my poor husband like walks in, he's like, I'm like, just start to cry. I'm like, just talk amongst yourself, explain what's happened. It was just crazy. Well, then we're like spun into this new experience. So they walk us from the children's hospital, I mean, the adult hospital to the children's hospital. And they let my husband walk over to the children's hospital. And then he was politely asked to leave. And so for me, I had just I realized something bad was happening. So I just started walking a lot, trying to like get on my feet again. Um, and I had to go cold Turkey off of narcotics cause I was afraid of giving narcotics through my breast milk. So I basically had to walk off a C-section without any pain medication, which looking back is pretty wild. And, um, my husband wasn't allowed to help at all. No family members, nothing. So, uh, if anybody's been in NICU, uh, you can have two NICU experiences. You can have an intensive NICU experience is very, very small quarters, uh, lots and lots and lots of machines. And you have a seat in the back of the room that you're allowed to sit in. You do not have a bed to lay down in. It's just a rocking chair. And um at night, you're put into a raffle to might, you might get what is loosely considered a hotel room somewhere else in the hospital. Yeah. And it's a, you know, our experience was like a gigantic box with just a mattress thrown on top. And at night I would go in very late and I would, my body would go into shock basically because of the, you know, trying to heal. And then the next morning I had to get up, shower, put my stuff in a locker and go sit in the corner again. So, and again, without any family assistance, which was really quite sad. And then, you know, and another experience, which we ended up being introduced a little bit later in our Nikki journey, which was it's a long-term care. Those rooms are a little bigger and you have one of those like fold out chairs that you can lay in. Um, but 
basically it's not a comfortable experience for the parents, you know, for sure. But, and I understand why they do that, but it, it's very, it, it's a difficult journey. You'd hope that they, you know, do more than throw you a sheet in the corner. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that first week in NICU is that intensive experience where crazy testing, like they come at 6am and uh, I would, I would be there for the rounds. And then the last round was at 11 PM. So I stayed from 6 AM to 11 PM in that room and, um, just following like meticulously through the testing process and that kind of stuff. And so, uh, about a weekend, they transfers to long-term care. We stay there for a while until they recommend that she has a G tube placement. So for her, she has a gastric tube placed, uh, which is a hole through your abdomen that you receive um, nutrients that way, because anything that was coming in through her mouth was going directly into her lungs silently. There was no coughing. There was no choking. She was even aspirating on her own spit. That's how bad it was. Um, the seizure activity, thankfully she got an EEG. It didn't show any seizure activities. And oddly enough, and not most people know this, but um Infants that are experiencing seizures, sometimes it can be very like a twitch of the lip or it's very subtle. It's not like a full seizure that you expect for children and adults. So we were great to hear that, but um, it meant that when she went home, she was a little bit more medically complicated than I've ever, I'm not in the medical field. I just have no clue. Um, um, I have so many questions. First of all, can I just say that I know that you're not done with your story, we're gonna yeah, get no worries. Again, but I'm like right now I'm. So impressed you're able to say all of this without bursting out in tears. I've had a few like traumatic birth things happen and nothing near, like nothing near this. And I cannot tell the stories without like, it's still so traumatizing to me. Hey, let's take a quick break. Mama, I know that you are doing a great job, but maybe there's something you've been neglecting, like yourself or your marriage, the rest of your family or the systems in your home. Or maybe you're just ready for a change, but you don't know where to start. That's where we come in. Mama Systems can help you put systems in place so that your family is more organized, more peaceful, and more balanced. And so that you feel like you can get everything done that you need to get done during the day. We'll help make sure that you have a plan to advocate for your child in school and in the community, that you take care of yourself, your marriage, and the rest of your family, and that you have systems in place to help build teamwork mentality in your home and make daily life more manageable. All of this is doable and you deserve it, Mama. Check out mamasystems.net today. All right, back to our show. Yeah, uh, so I call it like the fight or flight stages. That Those early ones, I, I remember we experience our world in the five senses. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in those NICU experiences and I would just randomly burst into tears and just sob uncontrollably because the first few days, you know, I was on a lot of touchers. She had, I mean, just cords everywhere. Um, you know, of course she hadn't been fed. So she's under Billy Rubin lights too, um, for jaundice and all sorts of stuff. And I remember having conversations with the nurses and doctors about the, tra the trauma response. So I knew that years from now, if I smelled hospital soap, I would be transported back to that moment because of how many times I had to wash my hands. Um, the beeping of the monitors, 
um, if I hear that beat to this day, I am transported back to that moment. Um, cause beeping was a large part of our experience for years, honestly, because she had to be monitored so much. And I think those were such numb moments where I actually take moments now to give opportunities for grief. And so I'm able to process it through a little bit more. I think some still that are a little bit further down that this like story we're going through, uh, I still really have a a hard time um, processing. I think, you know, that it's an accident, right? But it could have been avoided. That that brings me a lot of um, sadness, um, bitterness sometimes, but I do call them opportunities for grief. You kind of have to let them come over you <laughs> in the moments that they're presented and uh, just let yourself be enveloped by them. And every time it gets a little bit easier and um, you can find more joy in that journey you know, even through the tough times. So I think that's beautiful. I think so many of us like a special needs moms or adoptive moms, like, oh my gosh, like we have so much grief for loss of people and expectations. And um, well, and I, I'm glad you said that expectation. So one of my big like mottos in life is expectations are the death of joy, right? So we have, I mean, it can even be reasonable expectations. I remember like going back to the infertility and uh, journey, I remember just sobbing over this concept that, you know, it's very reasonable to believe that if I have one child, I can have a second child and just laying that at God's feet going, you know, that's a reasonable expectation and I must mourn the expectation, but realize that expectation is robbing me of joy in that moment because people told me that you should be grateful, Nicole. How dare you almost like insinuate, how dare you grieve this? You have a child, like you're so lucky, don't you know? And I was like, you have no idea. Every time my, my baby died in my womb, I lost the baby in my stomach and I lost the moments with my, my baby in front of me. And I, I looked at it like two deaths at once. It was really just very challenging because I couldn't function and find joy with my daughter in front of me because of the grief I was experiencing in front of me. And so I had to have the this overwhelming awareness of, yes, my expectations are reasonable, but I have to be able to find a way around those lost expectations and find joy because I'm losing those moments, you know? And so... <laughs> Again, I'm like getting to this point where going, okay, you know, uh, I I've had so many experiences since my daughter was born of comparing it to my first daughter, right? So I have all my expectations of what a baby should be like. I, I didn't get pictures of her while she was being born. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to hold her. I never got to nurse her. I never got to. There's so many nevers. And that's something I do mourn even, even now I do mourn a lot of my nevers, uh, that I'm never going to get with her, but I get to celebrate the, the joys in the midst of it too. Like, um, she has breath in her lungs, like she's alive. And I, I do remember being bitter about even having to be joyful about that because I did have a lot of several friends prior to her birth that had to bury their babies. And so I 
did go through a period of like deep bitterness about having to even be grateful that she was breathing. Like, why should I have to celebrate something so basic (laughs) that I never had to consider with my first, you know, she just breathes. And for the first two years of Cosette's life, my, my youngest, uh, I can't count how many times she stopped breathing. That was kind of her thing. Um, when you have brain damage, it, it, ha- it affects your metabolic rate, your ability to take calories and, com- uh, and oxygen convert it into energy. So her, her breathing just would stop and she'd turn like completely purple and limp four five, six, seven times a day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, my, my day-to-day reality, even when I got home from NICU was, I mean, honestly, I can't even, I go back and I can't even figure out how I functioned, like kept things going because I had to pump and then I had to fortify the, the milk and I had to pump close enough to the time that she would be, then it'd be pumped back into her with a pump. And I used to give her opportunities to try to latch, but I had to make sure I didn't have, I had an empty breast to offer her because if she got any milk in her mouth, then she would aspirate and get pneumonia and die. Like that's the way (laughs) that was the process. So I did that six times a day and the, during the day. And then of course I changed all of her medical equipment out at six o'clock. Consequently, she actually ended up with colic as well. So for between 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. every night, she screamed uncontrollably. Then we would lay her down for bed and she had a continuous feed. So you could basically hook your baby up to a pump and it just, they're getting food throughout the night, but you have to get up in the middle of the night and change that out because it's natural breast milk. You don't want it to expire. Um, I get up, I'd pump, my husband would change out the materials. We'd get back into bed and have to start it all over about five, six o'clock the next morning and do it over and over again for months. That was how, that was our schedule. And then of course she stopped breathing a lot. Um, really early, it was like pretty minor events in the sense that every minute she would stop breathing several times. And she would just gasp for air a lot. Like she was just, <laughs> yeah. But then she got older and, and the events got more intense in the sense of like the turning purple <laughs> type deals, which, yeah, that, that trauma to this day, um, you know, she still chokes pretty frequently, but it's not as often. And so <laughs> we're so used to it that uh, we, we know how to respond. It's like, like nothing there kind of thing. We're just so used to her choking. Um, and other people are like, what's it's, it's fine. We'll get through it. She's done it more times than I could count. <laughs> oh. I okay. So you said that she had obviously had brain damage because of the birth. Mm-hmm. Okay. But her official diagnosis is CP, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, so he is what they call the event at birth where they don't have, um, it's H E E or H I E, sorry. Um, and that's her lack of oxygen and cerebral palsy is sort of like a description of the damage that comes from that epoxic, uh, damage that you have to the brain. 
the best way I always kind of explained it is that cerebral palsy usually is a cause by an event or some medical uh, other medical problem that causes that damage to the brain and CP is that description of the outcome. Okay. Cerebral palsy is the largest disability group in the world. Um, and the, every single case as it is as unique as the person that has it, because the longer you are without oxygen. So for Cosette, she was, uh, restricted oxygen flow for 27 hours, somewhere in that range. So in the womb, she had, you know, a prolonged rupture of membrane, you know, not a lot of oxygen. And then the event in which she had the prolapse cord was about 10 to 15 minutes. So that means that the longer you are without oxygen, the deeper the damage into your brain, it gets like deeper and deeper. And so the, the less longer period of time without oxygen means the more intense the condition becomes, but no matter what, um, it's just unique to the person. So for her, uh, her areas of issue, <laughs> uh, are, she's nonverbal because it, again, like I, I, I mean, I've explained this so many ways, but I usually explain it in a certain ways. So, uh, you know, you have brain damage and it affects your muscle groups in your body and you have muscles all over the place, including in your esophagus, including in the things you just don't see, right? So for her, it affected the, the muscles and the midline area of her body and it impacted her ability to swallow. And now that she's three and a half, she still can't speak because of it. And so she's in what they would call speech delay or nonverbal and she speaks ASL now. So she's very bright, a uh, little thing. And, uh, but she also can't walk. So it's affected, you know, she, actually she's, her progress has happened so quickly and the doctors are so pleased. She's very determined little thing. She really wants to move. She's done great, but she's in a little walker. And so she's, you know, zooming around life and just doing her best. Right. So Hers are things like her verbal ability to communicate, her um, ability to eat um, is affected, drink is affected, and then also her gross motor skills like walking and that kind of stuff. So, but eventually she will walk and she eventually will talk and she's going to just dominate this, this condition. <laughs> We're believing it for her. So, yeah. Oh, I love, I love that she's a little fighter. Yes. Thank you for that word. That's really sweet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, my heart is sad with you for the, just that trauma and all, like hearing all of that together. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, and I'm grateful that she's alive. Yes. Breath in her lungs. Yeah. Good and love. for Oh. Yeah, sorry, I was going to say for any mother that's going through that special needs journey, you know, just know that our our lows might be really, really low, but our highs are so much higher. And you get to celebrate the little things that you didn't get to celebrate, you wouldn't have otherwise gotten to celebrate. And sometimes it's a change in perspective that you really, really, really needed. And your your child really them walking through this different type of journey is more enriching to your life than you could have ever imagined as long as you let it, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would love to hear more about dignity defense. Yeah. Like how that was born. And then just kind of all the, all the ways that you guys minister love on people, all of that. Yeah. Well, okay. So kind of bringing the very beginning part of the story about my career um, and then kind of tying it together with the experiences that I have had with in my maternal journey. Right. Um, I realized how deeply important it is to the health of a society that the general person understands how important you are as a person that our dignity is derived, our worth is derived from being the immeasurable image bearer of our heavenly father. And just by consequence of being human, you are immeasurably valuable. Nothing that you contribute to society impacts your worth, period. And the advocacy work I did overseas there, it really like, it drove that idea home. So, you know, you could advocate for the release of the child bride from her circumstance, but it became really, really apparent not too long into my career that you could advocate for a release, but there's always going to be 10 other little girls behind them. Right. And so, but what was allowing the man to buy the little girl in the first place? What was allowing for 10 other little girls always to be there for generations to come to take that place? Right. And so it was culture. Culture was what was creating these systems of injustices that would perpetuate these terrible acts from being carried out. And really no different than Uganda and the United States. We have our own injustices that we create around us. And a lot of times it's a lot quieter, right? But the disability community is impacted by that in a big way too. And that so Cosette's story, my, my journey with her really gave flesh and bone because I would be in these CP groups and physicians were telling these parents to kill their baby because their quality of life is going to be terrible. So the parents in desperation would come to these groups and say, Hey, validate your existence. Please tell me your life has been worth living so that they might consider to save their child. And here I am in the mother of someone that's walked out this journey. And the odd part was to me when I was, I was going through this, this experience that I realized there are laws being put on the books that would allow for death by medical neglect up to 28 days after birth. And in fact, the laws are only just protecting what's already going on. Essentially, a child born in in Cosette's situation, they'll come to the parents and say, look, their life's not going to be worth living. Let them die. That's happening. In the U.S. So this, in the U.S., today. And in fact, I've had testimonies like out of Colorado. I had a, had a grand grandparents approach me about that. Their grandson went through that. And so, um, born very similar to Cosette situation. And so this idea that it's only going to be in the womb is false. It's already outside the womb. We're already saying that we can just kill our children because they're not meeting societal and cultural expectations of what is valuable. 
And we have powers that be are measuring our human value based off of what we're going to cost them. That's really what it comes down to. My daughter is going to cost them money. Other people born in those circumstances are going to cost them money. And it's going to affect their ability to produce some sort of culture and society that they they deem is as fit, which is being devoid of those unwanted people. And so if we allow this concept of, of measurable worth to infiltrate all areas of our society, which honestly, that's where we're at, we're going to have death by medical, medical neglect up to a ripe old age. We'll have youth, euthanasia always. Like we, society will be able to just say, you know, you're not worth the expense that you pose. So those two journeys, you know, with my global advocacy coupled with the reality that I was encountered with personally with Cosette and what was actually currently happening in reality around us and our policy made me found Dignity Defense Institute. And the idea is to bring together um, what we call experiential experts, right? So like people like me, I understand what it feels like to be a mother that has gone through some really, really difficult realities that's brought me into an awareness of what's happening. Um, we, we have others that have been trafficked. We have others that have experienced abortion. We have others that have experienced all these other different aspects of injustice in our society. And they know that these things are happening and they're coming out there and they're educating and say, Hey, you know, you're important. You're worthy. You are valuable. And to avoid and to find a solutions for those that are hurting in these circumstances that are injustice that's being created in our society we bring these people in and we educate on what's happening and we try to find viable solutions for, for people that are genuinely hurting every day. And I always try to explain, uh, we often advocate in silos, right? So, you know, human trafficking is over here. Disability rights is over here. You know, um, dignity in the womb is over here, you know, but honestly, they're they're not. Uh, injustice isn't in a silo. <laughs> like the all of these cases of injustice, they're all the same, rooted in the same idea that someone's dignity, their worth, is measured not by being human, but because they're vulnerable and they can be exploited. And so that's really where it came from. And and organizationally, that's what we're really oriented towards is is education and advocacy right here within our culture here in America. So dignity. <laughs> we all need that belonging and yeah. I, amen. Yeah. <laughs> Just goes so so hand in hand with adoption work and advocating for yes those who don't have we don't have parents that can yes. advocate for them. And then also in the special needs world of just like going down that road in my mind just now of the 28 days and thinking like, that's such a slippery slope, right? Oh yeah. <sighs> and like, what does that mean for my kids? Cause they're not going to come up to any societal standards of, Oh any, yeah. You know, and like, well, know. it, 
And I think the way that we've always discussed it as like the, in a range of impossibility, right? So what we experience and our own awareness, like from, from all the years we've been on this earth, right? And we have this culture that's been built around us um, that we don't realize that, that not all cultures have been like this. It's it, we evolve with time, right? So if we make these little allowances within our culture, they do go down these roads that we're leaving something for our children that is really, really disastrous. But that's just not how we really think about it. Cause it's, I don't know, there's like a blind spot, I guess, you know, and, and I think previous generations may have had more of an awareness to it, I guess, because they, they were so strict on those boundaries, but those boundaries were still given allowances over time. So that's kind of where we're at, you know, where you can kill your kid up to 28 days after birth. I'm just still gobsmacked about, smacked about that. So. Yeah, that's so crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I'm so grateful for you, <laughs> for the work that you're doing and just, I mean, how you're advocating for the vulnerable and yes. Well, and I, yeah. And I would encourage to don't get overwhelmed by it. I think when people get a, become aware of the things that are happening, sometimes they can get overwhelmed and sort of stuck, you know, but I really encourage people to lead in empathy, you know, lead where you're at, right. Where your experiences are. So we're talking about adoption. Adoption is a really big part of our mission too, because it's really important that somebody that walks through a experience that is to be separated from your family and the love and the support and the protection that those families often provide and to find those viable solutions to finding the best quality family that can provide the perfect protection that you really need and that you deserve that as a person. And you're so valuable that an entire group of people would care so much about you to show up and make sure that, that all of these children have families, you know, that that's important to advocate for and fight for. So. Yeah. Oh, wait, you need to tell people about your podcast too. Oh yeah. Well, thanks. Um, so I have a podcast as well. It's called pro dignity, no doubt. And, uh, here on, on the podcast, basically we tell a lot of these stories that I was talking about the realities of what's happening and the various different ways. And we try to connect the dots through stories about what's happening and how we can advocate. Um, and so that's really found pretty much anywhere podcasts are found if you'd like to find us. So I would love to have you guys as a listener too. Yeah. And we'll put all of your links and all the things down in show notes so people can find out more about dignity defense and um, how we can get involved and awesome. advocate alongside you. So <laughs> I'm so grateful, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm so glad that you joined us today. If this episode blessed you at all, would you mind leaving a review or sharing with others? This, as you know, will help other mamas find us and in turn will bless them. Hey, thanks so much for trusting us with your time today.